There were just a few of us sat in the largest government-allowed church of a country in Southeast Asia who knew that the church's pastor was about to give the sermon of his life. It was the minister's last Sunday as pastor of the church. I apologize for not being able to tell you what country this was. I don't tell you for security reasons, and likewise, I can't tell you the name of the pastor. But anyway, in this country where we're sat in this church, unbeknown to the pastor's entire congregation, the authorities had become suspicious of his underground Christian activities, and they told him that they were moving him to a desk job, and they were taking him away from leading a church. It was made exceptionally clear to the pastor that he wasn't allowed to tell his church that his next job would be sat at a desk and that he'd been forced to leave. Rather, he had to paint a bright picture of how the Lord was moving him on to new things. In front of the whole church, he knelt down, and with tears running down his face, he asked the church to forgive him if he'd ever hurt anyone or done anything to offend them. And he then went on to preach the most gracious sermon I've ever heard, talking of how God's timing is always perfect. He encouraged the church to be determined to serve God with the entirety of their lives. I'd been told that this man and his wife were two of the most influential Christians in their country. They were known for their godliness. That service for me was one of those holy ground moments where I saw what faith in God looked like. In front of a church who had no idea of the external pressure that the pastor was under, and in front of government officials who were there to make sure that he obeyed their instructions, the pastor declared that no matter what, he would live for Jesus as long as he was in the world. Nothing was going to stop him knowing that just that week he and his wife had been warned that they were facing arrest, his words to me were awe-inspiring. I had the privilege of going out for a meal in a hotel with the pastor and his wife and their daughters. His daughters had brought a guitar with them and they asked if they could sing. While the whole restaurant looked on, the girls sang songs of praise to God. This was happening in a country where Christianity is hated. A place where Christians are literally hunted down, often imprisoned, even killed. The girls sang, and as their parents listened, they just closed their eyes and they raised their hands to God. The restaurant was utterly silent and watching. All that mattered to this family was God. His presence and their desire to worship him and live for him utterly permeated their lives. In our passage this evening, Moses isn't cutting such a dashing figure of faith. The opening words of our reading finds him telling God again that he can't possibly speak to Pharaoh because he is a man of faltering lips. 
if you've got your Bibles open and you just turn to verse 28 of chapter 6, we'll just read those words again where, he, where we read, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Now as I'm sure you know, there is a very strong likelihood that Moses had a speech impediment. The original Hebrew words used for faltering lips are actually heavy of mouth and tongue. The word heavy often refers to some sort of physical ailment or disability. There's also a possibility that Moses has forgotten how to speak Egyptian. In the book of Ezekiel, we find the same words, heavy of tongue, but this time in the context of, of not understanding foreign languages. So Moses finds it hard to form words, and possibly the Egyptian language isn't coming as easy to him as it once did. But I also think that there's much more to Moses' reluctance to do what God asks than these two issues. I think Moses is a man who feels the utter weight of his flaws. He struggles greatly with issues of identity. He's a murderer. He's really bothered about what other people think of him. And his 40 years spent in the wilderness looking after sheep suggests that he carries a fear of being found out. It's a huge issue for him to return to the places of his past because he's been running away for so long from the person that he used to be. Commentators on the book of Exodus, on the whole, find Moses' excuse of faltering lips whiny. But I have to say, and I may be the only one here, and, I, and I'm happy to be the only one here, I have to say that I find his reluctance strangely reassuring. And his awareness of his own faults really quite heartening. Because I too, quite frankly, can be exceedingly whiny when faced with situations in my own life that are hard. And I often feel the weight of my own flaws, and they sometimes just feel utterly heavy. God called Moses to be who he was, just as he was. But he was also calling him to become something that he was not yet, a leader who could bring God's people out of bondage. And in becoming that leader, Moses has to embark on the challenge of leading the most challenging person of all, himself. The Bible is really honest when presenting us with the characters who've played an intrinsic part in God's story of rescue and redemption. Last week, uh, Mark was preaching and he listed many of those key characters and the flaws that we know that they carried. And yet none of these things, none of these flaws, none of these failures and foibles deterred God from using them. Our flaws never disqualify us from God's economy. In fact, they can often be the very things when we're willing to confront them that can mean we can learn 
to lead our own lives from such a posture of grace, such a posture of humility, deeply aware of our own humanity and need of God. Leading our lives from such a place, from such a posture, means that we're far less likely to stand in judgment of others, but rather meet others with the grace that we have found for our own failings and flaws. Daring to be vulnerable and to confront the parts of ourselves that we do not like initially may feel incredibly painful, but ultimately will shape us like Moses to become something that we are not yet. There are actually over 780 mentions of Moses in the Bible. And if you look at them, we've heard him described as a man of faltering lips from his own lips. But let's see what the Bible says. If you look at them, you will see him described as a prophet, a priest, leader of Israel, poet, miracle worker, hero of the Exodus, mediator between God and humans, interpreter of God's word and founder of Israel's laws, religion, and political administration. According to Tom Wright, as a human being, Moses holds an almost totally unique status. And in Deuteronomy 34, it talks of how no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the signs of wonders the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown them the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Numbers 12 describes Moses as more humble than anyone else on the face of this earth. The two primary epithets given to Moses are man of God and servant of the Lord. And in our reading tonight, we will even see him being described as God. I find that deeply reassuring. In her book, Still, Lauren Winner writes of how the Christian story is a good story in which to learn to fail or acknowledge our failures. As the ethicist Samuel Wells has written, some stories feature heroes and some stories feature saints, and the difference between them matters. Stories told with heroes at the centers of them are told to laud the virtues of the heroes. For if the hero failed, all would be lost. By contrast, a saint can fail in any way that the hero can't because the failure of the saint reveals the forgiveness and the new possibilities made in God. And the saint is just a small character in a story that's always fundamentally about God. This evening, if you, like Moses, feel like a person of faltering lips, a person who is carrying the weight of their flaws and is finding them to be very heavy, I encourage you to come and be prayed for at the end of the service and ask somebody 
to pray into that weight and that heaviness that you are feeling and reassure you that God loves you and accepts you just as you are and just as you can be. If you turn to chapter 7, verses 1 to 2, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything that I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Now, if you just put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment, there is absolutely no doubt that Pharaoh's court would have been an incredibly intimidating place to go. Think of standing before Kim Kim Jong-un in North Korea, or Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, ISIS's leader, and telling them that God wants them to let his people go. I'm not sure that if, even if Moses had been a good speaker, that Pharaoh would have listened to him. It would be fair to say that at this point in the story, Moses is probably more fearful of Pharaoh than he is of God. And I think that if he'd feared Pharaoh less, he wouldn't have placed so much on importance on his own speaking ability or on why Pharaoh should listen to him. After all, he didn't even have to make up his own speech to Pharaoh. God was going to give him every word that he needed to say. Moses hasn't totally grasped that this was not going to be a battle of words, but a full-on battle between God and Pharaoh. The theologian John Goldengay talks of the Exodus story as being the first great conflict story in Scripture between God and an imperial power, a superpower. Pharaoh has an incredibly high opinion of himself. He thinks he's God. He's been allowed to get away with his delusion up until now, but God has heard the cries of his people who are kept in slavery by Pharaoh, and he has determined that now is the time to move his story on, the story of how the world will come to be blessed through his chosen people by taking those people into the land that he'd promised them, In order to do this, God will show Pharaoh just who is God. Through Moses, Pharaoh will see the power of God. Moses will be like God to him. He will be able to do everything that Pharaoh's magicians can do, but he'll also be able to do much more. One by one, Moses will take on Egypt's gods in each of the plagues that are about to come, and he will show God to be stronger and in control. Through Moses and Aaron, God will pronounce judgment on Pharaoh's treatment of the Hebrew people, and through Moses, Pharaoh will see that he is not God. Moses the prophet is the irritant in the side of Pharaoh revealing Pharaoh's true nature and also revealing God's true authority and power. From the very dawn of creation, the Bible tells us that we are all image bearers of God. For Pharaoh, Moses was the way in which he encountered God. Paul carries on this idea in 2 Corinthians when he writes of how believers are like letters written by Jesus 
that the whole world reads. Very much like Pharaoh, often people won't look to God initially. They, like him, have decided that there is no God, but people do look at us. Those who may never pick up a Bible to read will read the stories that our lives are telling. What stories are our lives telling? One of the reasons that I was so inspired by the life of the South Asian pastor and his family, who I mentioned at the beginning, was simply because I could read Jesus throughout them. They were like God to me. They showed something of Jesus to me that changed the way that I looked at the world and the way in which I considered life found its meaning. Jean Vanier wrote the following words about a woman that he met who changed him. These words of Jean Vanier's have spoken to me in a number of situations in my life, mainly when meeting people who experience extreme poverty, but also when meeting people who show me God deeply. Jean Vanier writes, But if I get too near this woman... If I listen to her, if I begin to know the names of her children, her past, her life, if I identify with her, I can't go on eating out as I used to. I can't accept the luxury and the waste. If I truly love, if I feel concerned, my life must change. The time I get up and go to bed, the friends I like to talk with, to go out with, eat with in smart restaurants, the books I read, the money I have to spend. What stories are our lives telling? The prophet tells us, the prophets tell us in the Old Testament that one of the main ways that others see God in us is when we align ourselves against issues of injustice. Isaiah 58 talks of how if we spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then our light will rise in the darkness and our night will be like the noonday. In other words, people will see God. The early church found this to be true. Their churches were full of people who came along rich and poor because they saw the care and the compassion the first Christians had in their communities, especially in relation to the poor. They saw in those Christians something of God and something of his love for humanity. Every Saturday night when we open the doors of this church for soul food, we hope that through warm hospitality, a genuine welcome and offer of friendship, a special meal, and a kind and gentle atmosphere, that people will see that there is a God who loves them and invites them to know him. We believe that the God of Moses, who heard the cries of his people in Egypt and saw their mistreatment, hears the cries, who find, hears the cries of those who find themselves without a home, without money or work, we believe that he hears the cries of the lonely, the orphan and the bereaved, 
we believe he hears the cries of the addict, the immigrant, or the refugee. We pray that through us at P's and G's, people will read our lives and see Jesus. If you want to pray about the story that your life is telling, at the end, again, there will be an opportunity to have somebody pray with you. And turn to verse 3. And God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he won't listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. We're told nine times in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is actually quite a prominent theme. In English, the heart suggests feelings, but in the Bible, feelings are more associated with the stomach. The heart suggests thinking, taking up attitudes and making decisions. It's closer really to what we would refer to as the mind. In hardening Pharaoh's heart, is God manipulating him? I don't think so. I could give you many commentators' ideas on this. The, the general feeling is, we don't think so. If we are told nine times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we're also told nine times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. For the first five plagues which follow on from our story this evening, it was Pharaoh alone who hardened his heart. It was his decision. God merely confirmed what Pharaoh had already decided. So there's, so there's an element that suggests that God is merely saying that he knew what was going to happen, that he knew what Pharaoh's answer would be. We know that we have a God who's given each of us free will. All of us need to come to a point in our lives when we decide whether to accept God or whether we'll turn our back on God. One thing, though, that the Bible makes really clear is that God never turns his back on us. I love the words in the prophet Jonah, where Jonah is thoroughly cross with God, in a thoroughly bad mood, because after he finally made it to Nineveh and told the people there that God was going to judge them, and then they believed him and they repented of all the things that they were doing wrong, well, Jonah is really miffed because God changed his mind about bringing judgment against them. Isn't this what I said, Lord, said Jonah, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall my fleeing to Tarshish, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Already in the Old Testament, Jonah is articulating the offence of the gospel, the offence that nobody is excluded, nobody at all. But in our story this evening, and for Pharaoh, there is no repentance. For Pharaoh and for Egypt, there's going to be judgment. 
And I have to admit that I don't find these verses in Exodus about God hardening Pharaoh's heart easy, especially knowing the fact that everything took so long. Because everything took so long, this meant the prolonged and intensified suffering of the Israelites. After all, couldn't God just have snapped his fingers and the people would have been free? But then I'm reminded of a Southeast Asian sermon given by a pastor, a Southeast Asian pastor's sermon, rather, that declared that God's timing is always perfect. During the time that it took for the Israelite people to be released from Egypt, it would have been very clear to them that their God was powerful and that he was in control. The signs and wonders that happened with the plagues that are to come would not have only demonstrated to Pharaoh that he was not God, but they would have also reassured the Israelite people that their God was the one and only God. This was a reassurance that they were going to need for the long journey ahead. What Exodus is saying is that God is in control. It's all about God. And this is significant as it echoes out across history. It's an eternal truth. So in our struggles, in our dark times, when it's hard, we can declare that God is in control. This doesn't lead to an easier life, as we can see from the Israelite people. In fact, it's really important to realize that being God's people will always hold an element of suffering because after all, we follow a God who picked up a cross and died. I think that there's a theology of suffering that we need to embrace more in the West. The persecuted church in so many countries across the world have come to understand it. I'm not so sure that we have. But God is in control. And his, the fact of this does bring hope. It helps us to see beyond the details and look at the big picture. And the incredible fact that God works in our life and in the world reassures us that whatever we face, we never face it alone. And I really don't say those words lightly. Because maybe this evening, at some point in our service before we leave, we could sing those words of reassurance. Those words that declare that God is in control even though things seem utterly dark over a family and their little girl from Iraq. On August the 6th last year, their town of Karakosh in Iraq was taken over by IS militants. The family had nowhere to run um, because Kader Abadar, the father of the family, was blind. And so they stayed in their town, hoping that the militants would show them mercy. Their hope was very quickly destroyed when on August the 22nd, the family was taken by IS militants for what was said to be a medical checkup. More Christians were all brought together that day for these medical checkups. Most of these Christians had stayed in Quarakosh for similar reasons as the Abadars, because of handicaps, because of old age, or because of other limitations that kept them from fleeing. The medical check proved to be a pretext in order to rob the families and subsequently deport them 
from their town and cleanse the town. Ida, the mother of the family, described the situation inside the building where the medical checks were being held as chaotic, with a lot of walking up and down done by IS fighters. She noticed that she was pointed at several times while she was holding her three-year-old daughter, Christine, close to her. Eventually, the family were all ordered onto a bus. Ida was holding Christine in her arms, and one of the IS militants came. He walked up to Ida, and he took Christine from her, and he just walked away. Ida ran after the man, begging him to return her daughter, but he didn't listen. He took her to a building, and Ida couldn't see her anymore. That is, until an older, heavily bearded man stepped out of the building, carrying Christine in his arms. He appeared to be the leader of the militants, and he was called the Prince. Christine was crying, Ida was begging for her return. The Prince didn't say a word, but just looked at Ida and walked away, carrying the child with him. And that was the last time that Ida saw her daughter. Over the last 11 months, the family and their church have made many attempts to get Christine released, but there is nothing known about her situation. They don't even know if she's still alive. It was Christine's fourth birthday last weekend. Ida had asked the organization Open Doors to ask Christians across the world to pray for them. Pray for Christine and for us. We are living in the hope that someday Christine will come back. At the end of our service, Maybe we can pray for Ida and for her husband and for the return of Christine. Maybe at the end of the service you want to pray for renewed reassurance that you are not alone and that God is with you, even if it feels as though he is not. And finally, we just look at verse 8 where it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it'll become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. These final verses of our passage this evening stand at the beginning of what we call the plague narratives. If Pharaoh had have had eyes to see, and if his heart had not been hardened, then he might have understood the not-so-subtle warning delivered, almost amusingly, in the way that Aaron's staff swallowed up the staffs of the Egyptian magicians. That's quite hard to say, Egyptian magicians. The cobra was a symbol of the ruling power in Egypt. It was the main symbol of the ruling pharaoh, and the imagery is just totally clear 
by Aaron's staff swallowing up all of the Egyptian staffs, Moses is showing Pharaoh that God is the ruling power and that he's going to defeat the Egyptians. Our English language fails us somewhat in these final verses when it just describes Aaron's staff as being turned into a snake. Many commentators write of how the original Hebrew suggests something as big as a massive crocodile or a sea monster. I had in my mind that thing in the latest Jurassic Park movie that just came up out of the water and swallowed the woman who wasn't a very good babysitter. Anyway, if you've not seen it, you won't know what I mean, but it was big. If I would have been Pharaoh, I think I might have felt a little nervous. But the fact that Pharaoh didn't get the hint means that our story will continue with 10 plagues being visited on Egypt, each plague directly targeting the gods that the Egyptians worshipped at the time, and each plague demonstrating that the Egyptian gods were not gods at all. Only God was God. But that story is not ours this evening. Our story ends here. I began this evening with a story from the persecuted church. I wonder if we could end there too. It's a story that comes from Egypt today, the land of the pharaohs. Still a place where it's difficult to follow God. Christians experience all sorts of oppression and prejudice, although there's no doubt that the people who pay the greatest cost in Egypt to follow Christ are those who were once Muslims. I have sat in a prayer meeting with 7,000 other people in Cairo and heard them cry, let your people go. I've also heard stories that constantly reassure that God is very much with his people in Egypt and that he is in control. There's a story of a Christian man and his Muslim neighbors. And one day this Christian man gets a knock at his door and on his doorstep are his Muslim neighbors from next door who say to him, you go to church, don't you? He's a little bit wondering whether I admit to this or not, but he says, yes, yes, I do. Good, they said. Our daughter's ill. We heard that Jesus heals. We want to take our daughter for you to pray to Jesus that he heals her. So the man arranged for a car to take this Muslim family to church. This is a big deal. To take this Muslim family to church. And the family walk into the church and the pastor already knows why they're there and why they've come. And a number of people pray for the daughter and she's healed. The family are just utterly overwhelmed and they go home. A couple of days later, the Christian man knocks on his neighbor's door and he just goes to see how they are. And they said, we were going to come and see you. We've got so much to tell you. And he said, why, what, what, whatever's the matter? That day after our daughter was healed and we got home, when we opened the door to our house, our ho- well, it was an apartment, our whole apartment 
was flooded with light. It was everywhere, this amazing light. We just felt we had to fall on our knees and say that, Jesus, we will follow you. Do you say that to Jesus? Yes, yes. Oh, good, 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 because we went to our neighbors next door who were also Muslims, and we told them to come round and see the light. And they came round, and they fell to their knees, and they said that they are going to follow Jesus too. And the man, the Christian man, is really quite totally blown away by this and said, wow, that's incredible. And um, he said, "Um, and what about the light? What happened to the light? Well, they said, it's not gone. And he said, oh. Where is it? Every time we open that book you gave us, the light comes back. God's with us, isn't he? We're following Jesus. That is our God. This is our God. Even when you look at countries and you think that things might be really difficult or that situations are really terrible, even when we think of Iraq and stories like Ida and Christine, this is our God. He is working amongst his people when everything suggests that there is chaos and there is not order. Believe the Exodus story tells us that our God is in control, for he is God.